You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Well, it sure is good to be with you this morning. I'm thankful that I get to be here for personal reasons, but I want to second what your pastor already said. God is worthy of our attention. No matter the day or the location, the weather, he certainly is high and lifted up. And he deserves for us to think lofty things of him and to have our attention and our focus upon him. And I'm convinced of this, that when we do that, then he will speak to us. And I think he's always working, always trying to get our attention, always trying to minister to us and give us his truth and his life. A lot of times we're just too distracted to benefit from it. And, And this morning... When you hear an exhortation about locking in and focusing, it's not about controlling. It's about giving God our attention and hearing from him and giving him what he deserves. And so I hope that you'll do that. And maybe you notice it. I was pumped up about that choir special. And I'm not embarrassed by that. In fact, I was thinking before he ever said anything about my response, man, I want them to do that again. I almost got up. And spun around. Oh yeah. Big time. That was good. Aren't you thankful for the word of God? Yes. And it's such a blessing. It, it, it's, it's nothing that any human will say that is going to help you. But it's the truth of God that changes lives. Yes. And I'm so, so thankful for the access we have to it. And by the way, choir, you did do a great job magnifying that truth. And in good specials like the one we just heard, like the choir special, those, those don't just happen. There's a lot of work that goes into that. And so I am very thankful for that. One more thing I want to address, and then we'll get to our text this morning. Some of you might be wondering, did they wear the same suit on purpose? And the answer is yes. Maybe not him, but I did. I'll actually, there's a story behind that suit that I will share with you tonight. If you will come back, I would love to share that story with you. And I sure do love your pastor and his family, Aaron and the kiddos. They are very dear to us. And I'm so thankful for them getting to be getting to be involved in their lives and to have a relationship with them. And you have a good thing going here at Eastside Baptist Church and uh, all of you together. It's wonderful and so thankful for all of that. And I was more than happy to drive halfway to the Black Hills from the Boise area so that we could... So we could hang out with them. All right, Matthew chapter 4. If you would open to Matthew chapter 4. And then once you found your place, would you please stand to honor God's word as we read it? Matthew chapter 4. We'll begin in verse number 18 and we'll read down into chapter 5. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse number 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, 
in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So you understand what's going on, that he's called specific individuals to follow him and get this wording to be his disciples, to be his disciples. Verse 23, and Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people. That's amazing. We heard prayer requests this morning. So many diseases and physical battles people faced. There wasn't a physical disease or battle that Jesus was not able to master and remove completely. That were taken with divers diseases and torments and those that were possessed with devils and those that were lunatic and those that had the palsy. And he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. What you read in the in these next several verses, or, or what is referred to as the Beatitudes, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's, he's giving them a list of things that they need to be. And he concludes, or at least this part of it, he sums it up in verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth. Then in verse number 14, ye are the light of the world. In verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. So the thought is this living to have or living to be living to have or living to be. I'll pray. And then you can be seated. Father, so thankful that we're able to be here this morning. I'm, I'm grateful for the guests that are here and God, I pray that you would give them opportunity and a desire to come back next Sunday when their pastor is, uh, when the pastor is preaching Lord, but Even in in spite of a guest speaker being here, God, I pray that your word would be just as effective regardless of who is proclaiming it. Thank you for each one that is here. Thank you for each one that is prioritizing you. And God, I pray that you would use this morning just as another small piece of your work in helping us to become all that you would have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much for standing. I assume that many of you would share this sentiment and certainly don't want to create any kind of an argument, but I love the military and specifically the military of our United States. I'm very thankful for everyone that has served or that is serving or that will that will serve. And that that's not a statement that every action our government has taken or every individual that's ever donned the uniform bearing the flag of the United States has been right or good or honoring to God. But as a nation, we need to recognize that God uses militaries to defend and to protect that nation. And our nation has benefited from military service and from men and women who have been willing to serve. 
In fact, in my family, we have a very rich, a very rich history of military service. I have a grandfather who jumped out of airplanes into Normandy on D-Day. I have another grandfather who was in the Navy in World War II. I have an uncle who was in the Navy and uh, other, others who were in the military. My mom and dad, the way that they met and where the Lord introduced himself to them was when they were both enlisted in the United States Air Force. I'm thankful, please get this, I'm thankful for everyone that serves in our military. But this is also a true statement. What motivates people to serve can be different across the board. Just because people are wearing the same uniform does not mean they have the same motivation. Just because people are moving in the same direction does not mean that they are all being motivated by the same, by the same thing. Now, I'm not, I'm not critical of any of these motives. I just, I just want us to think about them. Some people join because they want to carry on a family tradition. And I, I would say that there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Some people join because they have a long-term career goal in mind. And you understand that the military can be helpful to that. I actually graduated high school with a friend who took that course and God blessed it. And so you understand that joining the military can give you certain educational advantages and career opportunities. And so you join for that reason. I remember the day, as many of you do, I remember the day, specifically the day of September 11th, 2001. And uh, I was 20 years old when that event occurred. And many of my peers and even within myself, I was wrestling with whether or not to attend Bible college and had a very long conversation both with my wife and with my dad about feeling like I needed to join the military. And there were many who joined, the, who joined up in the Marines and the Army and other branches when that event occurred because they wanted to defend our nation against the terrorists that had dared to invade and cause such destruction and loss of life. You know, I'm not, I'm not being critical of any of them. I just want us to understand that you have, you have people across the spectrum of military wearing the same uniform and moving in the same direction. And yet what is inside of them, what is motivating them can be completely different from one another. Not just the things that I mentioned, but there are many other things that could motivate them. Here's the point. Different people can be motivated to do what seems to be the same thing, but they're being motivated by very different things. We have in our text two groups of people that were moving in the same direction. Here's the direction. They were all trying to follow Jesus. They were all trying to get close to Jesus. We'll call, we'll, we'll divide these, these two groups up with these terms. You have the multitudes that we read about, and then you have the disciples. They're both putting forth effort to follow Jesus, but they're both after two completely different things. Now, as we read in verse number 18 down through verse number 22, Jesus has already begun to the process of calling his disciples. Now, they don't know yet what is all in store, and they don't fully comprehend the magnitude of the one who has called them or of the ministry that he's calling them to. But they do know this, that the master has called them and they need to follow. And they also understand this because Jesus clarified it in verse number 19. Follow me and I will make you. And then he tells him what he will make them 
to do, to be, they understand that the, he's calling us not just to hang out with them. He's not calling us just so we can be buddies. He's not calling us just so we can have some quality time. He's calling us because he has a purpose for our life. There is something specific that he has in mind for us by engaging us in this relationship with him. There is something that he wants us to become. There is a pursuit that he wants us to be engaged in. So they give themselves to following Jesus. This isn't the message, but it's a really good point. In verse number 20, this happens. And then it happens again in verse number 22. The men that he called, their occupation was to be fishermen. It wasn't a hobby. It was the sustainer of their lives. They left their nets and they followed him. They, in order to fully follow Jesus, you, you must be willing to lay aside anything that is going to prevent you from being 100% loyal to him. And so they give themselves to following after Jesus. Well, Jesus is teaching. And as he is teaching, he begins to heal. This is a great um, attribute of Jesus Christ. Understand that as the world is now, the world was then. It was filled with disease. It was filled with suffering. It was filled with spiritual invasion of demonic forces who sought to oppose the work of Jesus Christ and afflicted mankind with all sorts of ailments and difficulties. And Jesus came onto the scene and the message that he was teaching was not a temporal message, not a temporary message. He wasn't primarily concerned with the immediate life. He was concerned about all of the people having eternal life. And so he comes and he's teaching the truth of the way of God. He's teaching that he is the way to God. He's teaching that he is the life and the resurrection and that through him anyone can be saved. But in order to authenticate that message, he begins to heal people. And so the, the point, the primary point was not healing. The primary point was demonstrating this. If I have power over diseases, then you can believe what I'm saying. That's right. If I have the authority to cast out this fever and to rid you of this paralysis and to take away this leprosy by my touch, if I can take away the blindness or that speech impediment or that hearing loss or raise the dead by the power of my word, then you got to understand my word has authority. And so he healed in order to authenticate the truth that he was teaching. I love this. Jesus... He does not despise the multitude because they needed him. He loved them. In fact, you read in other places, and it's demonstrated, though I don't believe it's stated the same way, it's demonstrated. He had compassion on them. He cared for them. He loved loved them very much. So the disciples are following him because they believe that he has a purpose for their life. Jesus sees the suffering of these multitudes and he is, he is healing them and giving them relief. But we need to be honest about why they are following him. They're following him because of what they can get from him. Because of what they can have. That's not a bad thing. But the text makes a very clear distinction that you have multitudes that were following him in order to have 
the benefit of his healing power. Now, to be fully transparent, if I were in their position, if I myself had a disease that was going to take my life or severely limited my ability to provide for my family or enjoy life, if I had a child who was certainly going to die and there were no solutions from the medical advancements of the day, however limited they were, there was nothing that could be done for them, I would do anything and everything I could to get to the one who could heal them. I'm not, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have done the same thing, but just pointing out, you have the multitude that are following Jesus, and this is why they're following him, because of what they can have physically, we can have his healing. Well, after a time of healing, Jesus goes into the mountains, and I want you to notice who follows him, his disciples come unto him. The multitude stays behind, and there on the mountain, Jesus begins to teach them in chapter 5, that they were to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he specifically tells them what attitudes they need to have, what mindsets they need to be implementing, what, what kind of lifestyles they need to be living out in order to be the salt and the light of the world. He is training, he is preparing them to do what he originally called them. He said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men in chapter 4. And now in chapter 5, he's beginning to tell them what they need to do in order for that to be a reality. He is telling them what they need to be. He doesn't, he doesn't fill chapter 5 with all of the luxuries that you're going to have in this life. He doesn't say, hey, follow me and I promise you're going to have this much money. Follow me and I promise you're going to get to live in this house. Follow me and I promise that you're going to be comfortable all your days. Follow me and I promise that you'll get to retire just like you dream of. Follow me and I promise you that everything is going to work out just the way you plan. No, he doesn't fill chapter 5 and the next chapters with what they can have. He fills it with the commands and the expectations of what they need to be how they need to think, and how they need to live. And so we've got to recognize this distinction. The difference between the multitude and the disciple. First of all, see the similarity. They are both putting in effort to follow him. You read in verse number 25 of chapter 4, they came from great distances to follow, to find Jesus. It was hard, serious effort they were walking great distances. Many of these would have been poor and not able to afford the luxury of a, of a donkey or a horse that they could ride or some kind of cart that they could be carried in. You think about the effort of in, in later on in the Gospels of the man that was born of four and how they carried this man a great distance and they climbed up onto a roof and lowered him down. It, it, we're, not, we're not minimizing the effort here. They were putting intense effort into getting to Jesus, just as the disciples were putting intense effort into following Jesus, they were willing to leave their nets, leave their livelihood in order to follow him. But here's the difference. The difference is why they followed him. The multitude followed because of what they could have from him. The disciples followed him because of what they could be if they followed him. The multitudes were following to have. The disciples were following to be. Now, be honest, I've already mentioned it, and I want to make sure you don't misunderstand this point. At some point in everyone's life, you need to have. This is not about criticizing the need to have, because we all have needs that must be met 
in order for us to live life. All right, you missed a great Sunday school lesson. Look, the word of God is good at 945, just like it is at the main worship service. And it was a good lesson. And we heard about how the Lord is our shepherd and how he provides for us. And you can, and in the announcement time, there's there's an event coming up where you're going to have some, what are they? Flautas. And then there was a comparison made to Taco Bell. I just want to tell you, I'll take my wife to Taco Bell on our anniversary. Man, Taco Bell's good stuff. You know, you, you don't have to agree with me about Taco Bell. That's okay. You can get right with God later. I'll meet you down here at the altar. And give me a cheesy gordita crunch. That's authentic. <laughs> Taco Bell. <laughs> Give me a Baja blast, man, I'll pray over that and I'll enjoy it. You know what? We, I'm, I'm being silly. I get it. But we all have need of food. Well, we all have need of education. We have need of understanding. We have need of having a house. We have need of clothes. We have need of transportation. We have need of all sorts of things. You know what your greatest need is? It's to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's to understand that you're a sinner and that without the intervention of God, you will spend eternity suffering under his judgment. But he never intended for that to happen. So he died on the cross and he paid for every wrong thing you could ever do or ever would do or are capable of doing. And he offers you eternal life and forgiveness. Forgiveness, so that heaven can be your home forever. Amen. You all have need of that. Yes. So the, the point is not that we should never need to have. Because we've all, we all have those in our life. But the, the, the danger is that as Christians... We never reach the point where we transition from living to have to beginning to follow Christ so that we might be. It's like uh, you've heard I have basically a daycare. I travel with a daycare. (laughs) Remember one time I was, we were traveling through Texas and I was stopped. The guy wanted to have a friendly chat with me, and so we discussed what he wanted to talk about. But as he was walking around my vehicle, it was late at night, and he's shining a light in our Suburban. And I get 10 people in our Suburban. Man, we modified that baby, hallelujah. (laughs) And it's all legal, too. Yeah. He's walking around, and so he walks around, he's shining the light. It's like 2 in the morning. And he comes back around, he looks in the window, he's like, are all these yours? And this was one of the rare occasions when prudence prevailed. I wanted to say, no, man, we just saw him on the side of the road and thought we'd take him. I mean, there's a sign that said for free. I love, I love each one of our children and I'm thankful for them. And you understand what it is when, when you have a newborn, they live to have. That's what their life is about, having. And, and they don't have on your schedule. Do I need to elaborate here? Mom's up at two in the morning. It's like the death whales going all over the house. Feed me now! I gotta eat. They live to have. And what's interesting is you don't really see much change between five and 15, or between zero and 15. It's like, mama, they go from just, I need some milk, to then, hey, I need some money. Hey, I need some clothes. 
Hey, I got to have this. Hey, I got to have this. I got to have this. I have, I have, I, I, I have to have these things. And it's like, you just live your life to have from me. At some point, though, you want that child to begin to think outside of what they want to have. Right. And you want them to start taking steps to become something. Yes. What do you want them to become? Well, responsible. How about you start picking up your room? How about you do your homework assignment without having to be told 80,000 times? (laughs) How about you learn to, "Mm, oh man, this will help you right here. Kids are always hungry, but you know what they're not taught to be as much as to be thankful for the food that's provided for them. And so I want, I want my children not just to have an appetite for food. I want them to be thankful for the food that is provided for them. I don't, I don't want them just to have a desire to want money and resources. I want them to develop a work ethic. I want them to not be lazy. I want them to be diligent. You see, even with our children, even with our children, we want them to transition from living their life to have and then eventually to live their life to be something. Not just to have something, but to be something. And so you have these multitudes that are coming to Jesus. They are coming to have. And we've all been there. And there's nothing wrong with being there. And we will be there many times when we need the Lord to do things for us that no one else can do. But in the process of having, there needs to be growth in our lives. So that eventually we're not just living to have from Him. We are living to be for Him. We are living to be his disciple. We are living to be the light and be the salt, to live out the life that he wants us to have. Now, here are some realities about having versus being. Having produces more immediate gratification. Think about, if I may continue the illustration with kids, kids love the immediate gratification of Christmas. Just have. They love that. But teaching them to be diligent and to work hard and to save so that they can buy something, that they, the gratification is less immediate. And so sometimes you're not as motivated to be because the gratification is not as immediate as the gratification of immediately having. Here's another thing. Being is just hard. Now, you may struggle to be honest with this, but you can think back to a time when someone cooked something for you that you did not like. Some of you husbands right now are just really putting your faces down. You're like, I, no, no, no. God bless her. She's never cooked a bad meal in 80 years I've been married to her. <laughs> Maybe not. I'm just messing around here. I'll relax. Here's what I tell my children. I don't care if you like the food, but you better be thankful for the effort that went into preparing the food. Yeah, that's right. It's good. Oh, sometimes being is hard. Yes. I'm going to pick on one of my children, Ashlyn, right here with the beautiful blonde hair. Man, I'm from Louisiana. We eat beans. Just beans. Beans and cornbread. Beans and rice. Just beans. Just raised on beans, and my wife, she's from Missouri. I think they know what beans are there. They eat some beans too. And then we, we, we've cooked our children a lot of beans. My daughter hates beans. 
And it's been wonderful over the 16 years of her life to watch her choke down a bowl. And I'll just tease her. Hey, Ash, you want seconds? <laughs> and then she'll sit up and you can tell she's forcing that smile up. And she'll go to her mom. Thanks, mom, for the food. <laughs> to be honest, being is hard sometimes. Having provides more immediate gratification. Being is hard. But Jesus doesn't first call us to have. He wants us to receive and have salvation. But after we've had that, he wants there to be a transition to where we're not just living to have. We are living to be something for him. Here's some evidences that you're living your life primarily only to have. And we see these things from here and other examples in scripture. Number one, those who are living only to have relentlessly position themselves to have, but don't put equal effort into being. The de- they relentlessly position themselves to have, but don't put equal effort into being. The, the, the multitude here, they went to great lengths to have the healing that Jesus offered. The disciples went to great lengths to become what Jesus wanted them to be. And yet, for those who are only living to have, you see that there is a disparity in the effort that they put into having and the effort that they put into being. For example, isn't it amazing in our culture how much effort goes into having stuff? Having stuff with which there, most of the time there is nothing wrong with having it. And there is a need to have it. There is a need to have a house. There is a need to set up retirement. There is a need to have vehicles. And praise God for every good thing he allows us to enjoy. And being able to reap the benefit of having those labors and working hard. And yet there can be far less effort put into being his disciple. It's amazing how many hours we can spend working a week and yet we can never find time to read his word. It's a challenge every week just to be consistent in attending church. It's difficult to put any effort into spiritual investment in our lives. All of this effort into having stuff with which there's nothing wrong to have. When you say, hey, can you put time into being Could you be a help to someone right now? Could you be in the word? Could you spend some time being in prayer? Could you make an investment in our young people and helping them prepare for camp? Could you be? And yet there is a great disparity between the two. Another thing is this. When they can't have the way they want to have, they end up quitting. In Matthew 19, you read about the rich young ruler and he, he comes to Jesus with a false sense of his righteousness. And he tells Jesus all the good that he's done. And Jesus said, you like one more thing? Uh, go and sell all your goods and give to the poor and then come follow me. Here was the challenge. He wanted to have, but he wanted to have it his way. There are a lot of people that will come to a church like this. And they'll say, yeah, I just, I want to, I want to be a part until you can't have things the way, exact way you want them to be. And it's like, well, I don't really think I want to be a part of that anymore. That's not a reflection of Jesus Christ. That's not a reflection on the word of God. That's not even a reflection on his church. That's a reflection of what your priority is or is not. More concerned about having it exactly the way you want to have it. Here's another evidence that you're living to have rather than living to be. You become condescending towards those who are actually living to be. This is a great example of this in in John 12. Judas was the one who was taking care of the money. Judas Iscariot. 
And this woman comes and spends this exorbitant amount of ointment that costs a great deal of wage and pours it upon Jesus, just offering a great demonstration of her love to the Savior. And he begins to criticize her, saying that could have been used to feed the poor. But the text says this. He didn't do that because he cared about the poor. He really just cared about having money. And so he was critical of someone who was pouring themselves out, just trying to be to the Lord what, what he wanted her to be while they were consumed with having. It's amazing how critical people who aren't trying to be can become of those who are trying to be. You're just, you're just fanatical about church. You, just, you, you zealot, you think you need to be there more than once a week. You just, you just follow that pastor like he's God incarnate. No, but God does work through a pastor. You just, you just talk about that Bible and you talk about Jesus like that's actually real. Condescending towards those who are trying to be. Can I, let, this is kind of a soapbox for me. I just want to encourage you with this. In, a, in an environment where Christianity is being increasingly targeted for being the cause of so many divisive issues in our society. Can I encourage you with this? Biblical Christianity is only good for the community in which it's lived out. There is nothing ugly or nasty or harmful about it. It only brings the light of God's goodness anywhere it's lived out. And yet you see someone who's living out, the, trying to live out the faith of Jesus Christ. And those who just are more concerned with having, they can be extremely condescending. One more characteristic of those who live primarily to have rather than to be. They presume to have God's favor based on what they have instead of what they are being. In Luke 16, you had the rich man and Lazarus. This was the assumption. He fared sumptuously. Look at everything I have. Obviously, God is with me. Look, look at my car. In his case, his camels. Look at my... They were Ford camels, not Chevy. Anyways... I do drive a Chevy, though. Sorry. <laughs> Ford doesn't make... Near, anyway, sorry, I'm getting distracted. You look, at, look at my stuff. Look at everything that I have. Obviously, I'm right with God. And you find out that he wasn't even saved. You can't control everything you have or don't have, but you can control whether or not you will be his disciple. Here's, here's just three motivations to live a life to be instead of just living life to have. Again, don't go into the, the ditch on the other side of the road. Man, that preacher just thinks we should never need to have. That's not the point. But there should be a balance in our life that we are not only coming to the Lord to have, but eventually we grow to the point that we are living life to be. Let me give you three motivations. Number one, Jesus came to be so that you could have. Jesus came to be so that you could have. I don't mean by that statement that he came into existence. I mean that he came to this earth to be something specific so that you and I could have. What did he come to be? He could have come to be the, the king over the present earth at that time and to receive all the glory that he deserved. But that's not what he came to be. He could have come to conquer all of the Jewish establishment, religious enemies. He could have come to put his foot down on the oppressive Roman Empire. He could have come to be lauded and praised and magnified as he deserved. But that's not what he came to be. 
In Philippians 2, it tells us that he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death of the cross. He came to be a servant. He came to be a savior. He came to put himself in your place so that he could be the sacrifice to pay for your sin for all time. He came to be, and you say, why did he come to be that? So that you could have eternal life. You know why you have anything? It's because of what he came to be. He came to be your Messiah, your Redeemer. He came to become poverty so that through his poverty, you could be made rich. He came to be made sin so that you could be made righteousness. He came to be condemned so that you could become and have his justification. You say, what other motivation do I need? There should be no other motivation because he came to be, I can have, and that should motivate us all. It should stir your heart that he's done so much for you. Can I go back to the military for just a moment? Thank you for your permission. Thank you. I'm not asking anybody to agree with me politically. We live in a country where there's lots of different views and opinions. But I am, I am not ashamed of this. That flag represents freedom, opportunity. I love that flag. I love that flag. You know why I love the military? Because of what they chose to be, to defend those ideas, so I could have. You know why it drives me crazy when I see people burning and desecrating that flag? You don't have to like everything about America. But there are people who died to preserve the idea of freedom and opportunity. And you need to respect that. They came, and so it motivates me. No, this is what I'm saying. It motivates me. It motivates me to respect that because somebody died somewhere on a battlefield without their mom and without their dad and without their wife and without their girlfriend and without their kids. And there are empty tables all across this country for generations. And I did just even driving home, I think it's on Interstate 90, we passed what looked like a, mil- a military cemetery. And I see all those white headstones. And I see there, there's somebody's sons laid in there and there's somebody's spouses laid in there. Somebody's daughters laid in there. Somebody's friends, somebody's best friend, somebody's buddy, someone that they loved. And that motivates me to want to protect this country, to want to respect that flag. Can I tell you what should motivate you more than that? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He came to be so that you could have. And because he came to be, you should be motivated to be. I'm not done with the soapbox. Thank you for your permission. It drives me crazy that people just want to take from this nation and at the same time tear down this nation. You know what's even worse? Are Christians who just want to take from God but never want to contribute anything to God. You just want to have all the time instead of at some point getting to the place in your life where you choose to be for him. Follow him. Number second motivation A life of being produces much more quality than a life of having. A life of being produces much more quality than a life of having. Having can be useful. 
Uh, when I was learning how to play the piano, I, I learned this song. Just one note. Money can't buy everything. Money can't make you a king. Money may not bring success. Money can't buy happiness. But of one thing I am sure, money doesn't make you poor. <laughs> money doesn't make you sad. Money can't be all that bad. Thank you, I'm cutting a CD next week. I'll... <laughs> be honest, if we could have. Someone comes up to me and like, hey, you want a million bucks? Duh, are you dumb? <laughs> yeah, I want it. Isn't it amazing how messy people's lives get when they, they live to have and there's no effort to be? There's an example of this in scripture, the prodigal son focused on having, he went out and what does the text say? This word is interesting. He wasted his substance on riotous living. There was only, there was only thought about having and living his life how he wanted. There was no concern about being the kind of individual or the kind of son that his father wanted him to be. And it, the quality of his life deteriorated very quickly. Let me encourage you with this husbands and wives The quality of your marriage is not defined by the level of your income. The quality of your marriage is not defined by the square footage of your house. The quality of your marriage is not determined by the ride that you have in the vehicle you drove up to church in. The quality of your marriage and of your life together is not determined by what's in your IRA or what your company is promising you, or what the stock market is going to do, what it did last year, or what it's going to do this year. The quality of a marriage is not determined by what you have. It's determined by what you as a husband and you as a wife choose to be before God. And when a husband says, regardless of circumstances that I don't have full control over, I am going to be a, a, be a husband to my wife like Jesus loves his church. That produces quality in marriage. And when a wife says, I'm going to respect and submit to and adore my husband like the church is supposed to do to Jesus Christ, that produces a quality that money cannot buy. The quality of life that is produced by being in marriage is far better than anything that having will produce. Same is true with parenting. The quality of your children's lives will not first and foremost be determined by how much money you leave them. Far too many parents are consumed with their children having the best opportunities Instead of making sure their children have a home of stability, where they know they are loved, where they see the love of Jesus Christ, get it, being lived out on a daily basis, where they are consistently being in church and being around the people of God. And it's amazing how many kids are raised and they're raised with the motive isn't bad. I want my kids to have the best, but more than having the best, your children need to see you being like Jesus Christ and raising them for his glory. Too many children, too many children. 
today as they become adults and they transition from the youth department into adulthood. They are leaving churches in droves and it's because their parents built a life around having and not around being. Look, I, I, I tease my kids with this. Look, y'all better be rich because you're going to take care of me when I'm old. And your mama, if she's nice to me. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. Mama first. Bring daddy out in from the cold if you've got time. No, I tease my kids about that. But here's what I really want. And I tell them this. Kid, you, don't, you don't have control over everything that will happen in your life. But you do have control over what you will choose to be. You can choose to walk with God. You can choose to serve him. You can choose to be the right kind of friend. You can choose to have the right kind of influence. The same is true when it comes to being a part of a church like this. So many people have this. I, they, they, this is ingrained in their minds about church. Well, I want to have a church where I can have certain things. Did you ever think about this? That church is God's idea, and it's, since it's God's idea, he gets to be the one who determines what we should get out of it. And he actually, as the good shepherd, like we heard about in Sunday school, he knows what we need out of it. And so many people are coming to church with this attitude, with this approach. Well, if I don't get what I like, if I don't get what I prefer, then I'm just not going to be a part of that. And if it doesn't go my way in this, and if I can't have these certain things, rather than understanding there are things here that you need, primarily the word of God and the fellowship of his people, the edification of being a part of a body like this. And so you need to come in to receive those things and then to use those things to help you be a part of this church like he wants you to be. Say, well, I don't know how to do that. How about this? How about when you see a guest, go smile at him and say, hey, we are really happy that you're here today. Guests need to know that more than just their pastor is excited about them being here. And you know how they know that? I'm going to give you two ways they know that you're excited about them being here. Number one, look at them like you're excited. Look, I get it that I'm weird. You say, man, you're you tell pastor later, man, your friend, you need to choose your friends better. I kind of latched onto him like a leech. I mean, it's it's necessarily his choice. You say, but this is what I try to do. I don't know who's a guest. Who's not a guest? Somebody raised their hand. Are you, are you a guest? Yeah. Come here for a second. This is fun. Hurry, hurry, hurry. This wasn't in my notes. Guest. I don't know who he is. You ready? This is what I should do. Watch me. (laughs) Okay. Maybe not that bad. (laughs) Glad that you're here. All right. Okay. Really? Hey, man, we're stoked that you're here, bro. Yeah, yeah, that's good, man. Okay, look, I'm not saying that's how you roll in Sioux Falls. That's how I roll everywhere. But I want him to know I'm happy that you're here. Yeah, here's another way. Pastor, say, pastor says, guess we're glad that you're here. Good, you're catching on. Let's try it again. Guest, we're glad that you're here. Amen. Yeah, man. And then guests, they start to hear, man, all these people are saying amen about guests being here. 
Maybe they're actually happy that I'm here. And you take those two things, you know what's happening. You aren't just coming to church to get something. You are coming to church to be something. And here's what some of you will do. You will underestimate the influence that being something like that to a guest can have. Because if a guest comes in and nobody's really acting like they care that they're there, nobody's acting really excited that they're there, no one's smiling at them or offering them to have a seat. When the preacher gets up to preach, they're going to be struggling to focus on the truth of God because they're wondering if they're even wanted in the place. And yet when they are greeted, maybe this is a little too strong. I don't know how it goes here, but in some way you affirm, we are excited that you're here. You know what it does? It breaks down physical walls so that spiritually they can be open to truth of God. You know what's happening? That's just about, guess. you know what that's happening with you? When you come here, man, things better go the way I want. Or how about this? I'm going to go there to be something. I'm going to go there to be a friend. Thank you, bro, for your help. I appreciate it. How about this? I'm going to be an encouragement to my pastor. Well, I don't always agree with him. Congratulations. Your wife doesn't always agree with you. (laughs) And yet I'm pretty sure the text doesn't give you permission to be something different to your spouse just because you disagree with something about them. How about you just recognize God has given us a great man and family to help lead us and to help know him. I just want to be an encouragement to him. How about this? I'm going to be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters at this church that are struggling with some things. Well, I don't like everything they do. Need I remind you about your marriage again? How about instead of worrying about your opinion about every single decision everybody else is making, how about you just learn to be to others what Jesus was to you and come here to be a friend to people and be a help. I like it. Yeah, it's good. Just be. Don't, Don't just come to church to have. Come to church to be. I'm not done yet with this. This is good. You know, we pastor talked about this. I talked about this, not to second what he said, but because it is a, it is a conviction burned deep in our hearts. We do not sing to fill time. And the worst thing that can happen as a church is that you use the song service as a filler. You know what we are doing? We are literally trying to lift up praise to the high and lofty one who rules over heaven and earth, who deserves for us to, for a few moments, to lay aside technology and lay aside the burdens of the weak and just to lift up our praise to him. You know what we want to be before God? We want to be worshipful and reverent and we want to be people that are praising him. Don't just come here to have, come here and, and get involved in this church to be, to be to God a source of praise and a source of adoration and a source of offering to him. A life of being produces so much more quality than a life of having. Last point, those who live to be will eventually have. You read Matthew chapter 5, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. You know what? Eventually they all have something. Galatians teaches this, you reap what you sow. Here's the challenge. I already mentioned this. Having produces more immediate gratification, but being produces long-term results that will be far more satisfying. If I will focus on being to my wife what I'm supposed to be, that marriage will be far more satisfying long-term. 
if I will focus on being to my children what I'm supposed to be, that parenting will be far more satisfying long term. If I will focus on being to my church family what I'm supposed to be, that relationship will be far more satisfying in the long term. And in eternity, being his disciple comes with great reward. Let's just assume this. If he's this good in life, in this life, how much better is it going to be in heaven when there's no more sin? (laughs) No, Jesus said this, so I'm okay. I go to prepare a place for you. Have you ever told your kids you're going going somewhere special and they start asking like a thousand questions about it? And and you say something like this, hey, trust me, it's going to be good. Well, if you want your kids to do that with you, can you just assume that what Jesus has for us there is going to blow your mind? Here's the statement. Living life to be is a life worth having. Living life to be is a life worth having. So let me just ask you a few questions and I'll wrap it up. How do you respond when things are hard in your life? Well, I wanted it to be easier than this and, and we can all relate to that. We can't control those things, but we can control how we respond to the difficulty. How do you treat people when they don't treat you the way you would have them to? Do you choose to be what Jesus says you ought to? Or do you focus only, well, if you're not going to give me what I want, then I'm not going to give you the respect and the compassion that Jesus would have me to. How do you respond to authority when things don't go your way? Are you living, is there a part of your Christian life where you are focused primarily on having rather than on being? Is there a majority of your Christian life? Maybe you've been saved a long time and you've lived life primarily just to have and you've not taken any serious steps. I need to, I need to not just live my life to have. I need to live to be his disciple. I wonder, I'll just ask the question this way. Is there an area in your life where you know God is dealing with you right now, where you're primarily focused on having and you need to give more attention to being? Maybe it has to do with your home or your church. I'll ask this question. If you died today, do you know for sure that you have eternal life? Do you know for sure? You say, I I need to have something and I believe what I need is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can have that today because he offers to give it to any who will believe. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as the musicians take their place. And in just a moment, Pastor Jet will come and he'll lead in the invitation however he chooses. But I do want to ask you to consider those two questions. Number one, there's an area of my life where I know I have, I'm focused more on having than I am on being. And I'm, my, life, my life just consistently looks like the life of the multitude. And in this area, my life rarely ever resembles the life of a disciple. And, and God has dealt with me about that. I know, I know exactly what that area is. And I want God to help me with it. Would you pray for me? I'm not going to embarrass you anyway. I just want you to acknowledge, yeah, God's talking to me about it. And I, I want to be right with him in this area. Would you pray for me? I wonder if there would be any that would raise their hand and say, yeah, that's me. I see it. God bless you. God bless you. Yep, I see him. God bless you for your honesty. You don't, 
you don't start that process of being any other way than just coming to him and saying, Lord, I know this needs to improve. And, and then begin to focus on the steps that he says to, that he says to take. Oh, I wonder if there would be any that would say, I, I'm not sure that I'm saved. If I died today, I don't know for sure that I would spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. I've never, I don't know that I've ever received his salvation for myself. Would you, I want to know that. Would you pray for me? Just slip your hand up and put it right back down. God bless you for your honesty. Let's all stand together as the music begins to play. A life that is lived to be is a life worth having. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.